0: Rankings. Obviously, when it comes to college football fans, this is the last weekend of the regular season, and so big games are played, rivalry games are had, and so it's a it's a last last kind of dash to uh, who's going to be the, you know the top top four. What you, you know you might say on that, but also maybe for you not thanks uh, not for for those of you that are not football fans, also maybe a weekend of rankings as you sit around your family and you're reminded who your favorites are. And as grandparents look around, see some of the rambunctious grandchildren, or as some of us show up, we, we remember certain cousins, and maybe those rankings start to play out as well. Regardless of which rankings you were invested in the past few days, I hope that at some point you were reminded of, I cannot wait to get back Sunday night to see what the next ranking in the ministers of the roundtable top seven of the judges are. I know, it's been on your, I know it's been on your mind, it's been on our heart, and we're excited to be back in that tonight. Uh, We've had quite a cast so far. we started from the bottom. We've been making our way up to the top. A little shout-out to 520 down there. Uh, We started with a great study on Ehud and coming through Abimelech, Jephthah, and then last week we had, well, I think we all agree, might be one of the best studies we've had when it comes to the layout and everything, a great study on Gideon. But now we're transitioning into the top three. So we're getting excited about that. We're looking at some men and possibly women that play a big part, not only in the book of Judges, but in the history of Israel. And we're looking at what they can mean to our lives today. So, if that's, with all that being said, I'm happy to announce that with at, coming in at number three, we have Samson. Which I'd also like to admit that up until maybe college, I thought there was a letter P in Samson's name. <laughs> I think he wasn't until I was getting ready to teach a class on Samson in college at some point, that it was a big revelation that, ah... It's Samson, not Samson. Maybe that's just the Alabama in me. I'm not sure. Here's some facts we can be looking at as we, as we kind of get into our study. Um, Samson covers a, a large part of the book of Judges, right? We're kind of moving from like number seven, Ehud only covered half a chapter or so. And so now we've got to the book of um, uh, uh, the, the character of Samson. And he covers full, complete chapters. So kind of to, to kind of divvy that up to see the full narrative of the story before we get into the discussion, I'm going to kind of hand it over to the men on my right here to kind
1: of jump in with that. Uh, so, Judges 13. The people of Israel again do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gives them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Then there is a man named Manoah whose wife is unable to have children. The angel of the Lord appears first to only Manoah's wife, but later to both of the couple and tells her that she will have a son. The couple must raise the child as a Nazarite to God from birth, which includes a vow to never cut his hair. And the angel declares that this son will save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. According to the will of God, the woman bears a son and calls his name Samson. That's chapter 13.
2: Now to chapter 14. Uh, Judges 14 begins with Samson asking his parents to secure a particular Philistine woman as his bride. Now they tried to dissuade him from marrying outside of the nation of Israel, uh, but to no avail his heart was set on this Philistine woman and we're actually told in verse 4 of Judges 14 that this was from the Lord. In route to the Philistine town of Timnah to secure this bride, he's attacked by a lion. And that's the first time we're told the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. In verse 6, he defeats and kills this lion with his bare hands. So right now, all you need to know is Samson is a man's man because he single-handedly, well, he bare-handedly killed a lion. And from there, he goes on, secures his bride. He's at a wedding feast. And he is attended by—his his, uh, groomsman party is 30 Philistine men. These guys weren't even his friends or anything. They were just assigned to him to be his uh, guests of honor at this wedding feast. And he's sitting there having a good time during the festivities, and he decides, well, he wants to have a little fun with these guys. And so he poses a riddle to them involving that deceased lion who he saw earlier that week The carcass spread out with a beehive inside of it. He reached in, grabbed some uh, honeycomb, and ate it. And now he's using that as the basis for a riddle that he's posing to his guests. If they cannot answer his riddle in the allotted amount of time, every one of them has to give him a new outfit. If they do figure it out in allotted time, he's got to go get an outfit for every one of them. So he's made this wager out of this riddle he's come up with. Well, they can't figure it out, so they go and talk to his wife, who is one of their kinsmen, and convince her to go find out from him what the answer is so they don't have to owe him anything. She does just that, and then Samson is angry, uh, gives one of the best lines in the whole book that, why did you plow with my heifer? I don't know how any uh, wife feels being called a heifer, but that's what Samson said, Uh, And then he goes off, kills 30 men, takes their clothes, and gives them to the guys he owed. So it's not the best of stories, but that's the gist of what happens in Judges chapter 14.
3: Chapter 15 is one of those Old Testament chapters that you really wish could be made into a movie. You know, Mm. I mean, there's a lot of Old Testament stories and a a lot of things in the Old Testament. You're like, man, the big screen really deserves this moment here. However, chapter 15 would be one of those that at the beginning it would say... No animals were harmed in the making of this uh, movie or, or, or film or whatever it is, because uh, it's, 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 it's pretty crazy what goes down in chapter 15. Um, in chapter 15, at the beginning of it, uh, he is trying to uh, uh, see his wife, trying to see his wife, and he goes to his father-in-law's house, and the father-in-law will not allow him to come in and see his wife. uh, says something to the tune of, uh, I thought you hated your wife. Here's my younger daughter. Isn't she better anyway? Uh, Whatever that means. You can see what women mean in that culture at that time uh, for a father to say that about his own daughter. But anyway, they do not allow Samson to come in and and to see his uh, daughter. Chapter 15 really has everything you want in a movie or in a a show or whatever. You have a great uh, relationship struggle. You have this uh, great tragedy, and then you have this great revenge story, uh, all in 20 verses. But, uh, so he, he can't go in and see his wife, and so what happens next is, naturally, as any one of us would do, as men, we would go outside and gather 300 foxes. Is foxen, foxes? Foxes? Fox? I don't know. Foxes. I'm going to go with foxes. Yes. We go outside and gather 300 foxes and tie their tails together with a torch in between each of their tails, light them on fire, and just see how fast they'll run. That's what Samson does. Samson gathers 300 foxes, ties them together, and they run all throughout the land, burning everywhere they go, uh, burning down the land as they go. So what happens next is uh, Samson, again, he's not able to see his wife, He does this to the Philistine land. And what happens next is they they go and burn down his father-in-law's house. And his wife is burned to death in the process. And so what happens from there is verse 8, it says that he attacked them with a great slaughter. We don't know what that means. We don't know what that entails. We don't know what happened. But for the Old Testament to specifically say a great slaughter... There's no telling what happened on that day with Samson there, because as we see later, uh, there's another slaughter coming. But the problem uh, gets so bad with the Philistines and Samson that the men of Judah come to Samson and say, do you not realize that the Philistines are the ones who rule us? I thought that was interesting that the the tribe of Judah saw the Philistines as their ruler uh, at this time. And Samson has this scheme to with with the men of judah for them to take him to the philistines bound and we all know what happens after that he is not truly bound it says that his binds become like wax and he just breaks through them and slaughters a thousand philistines with the jawbone of a donkey no animals were harmed in the making of this right but anyway Samson kills a thousand men with a single jawbone. That's what makes this such a crazy story, um, because you grab a jawbone if you're Samson. That's just who you are, that's what you do. And he slays a thousand men uh, at the end of chapter 15, and uh, has this back and forth with God at the end of chapter 15 we'll talk about a little later. So then we enter in chapter 16, and this is kind of
0: the, the, the one of the culminating moments in the life of Samson. This is when we think of Samson, we think of chapter 16 mainly when it comes to the narrative here. And But he has a bit of a, the first few verses, before we get to Delilah, there's some action before then. He goes to the city of Gaza, spends some time with the harlot. And then while he's in Gaza, he's about to be ambushed by the Philistines. He, they don't think he knows that. They realize he's sleeping upstairs, and they're laying in wait. Well, around midnight, he wakes up and he goes, okay, well, this, is, this has been fun. I'm ready to leave. Picks up, he goes to the city center or the, the entrance to that city and picks up kind of the doorpost, everything that kind of meant the security of that city, throws it on his shoulders and just walks it up and leaves it on a mountain and walks off, right? And then now in verse uh, 4, after this came about that he loved a woman in the Valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And this is where we're introduced to the infamous Delilah, right? And it says that he fell in love with her. I'm reminded when, we, when it comes to the topic of love and the life of Samson, I'm reminded of the middle schoolers in my youth group, no offense guys, that come up to me and go, Jay, I found the love of my life. I go, that's great, buddy. Let's check back in in two weeks, right? It seems like, the, it seems like Samson is just walking through his life going, I love you. I want to spend my life with you. No, Okay, never mind. I, I love this one. I want to spend my life with you, right? And so we're going to kind of come back to that. But he, but he falls in love with Delilah. They, you know, they were married here. And then starts the, the demise of Samson, right? The, the Philistines um, come to Delilah and they, and they say, Okay, we'll give you 140 pounds of silver if you'll betray your husband. And just tell us how we can um, bring him down, right? And then that kind of begins this game of cat and mouse that seemingly Samson has no idea it's going on, which is just bizarre to see, right, when we read this. But Delilah says, okay, you know, what's the source of your strength, right? Where, where is it coming from? And before we get into that, I thought it was interesting. To me, when I think of Samson, I think of a bodybuilder. I think of this buff, just jack-looking guy. And you look at the History Channels, the Bible, you know, when it comes to that, that, that portrayal. They have this six, seven, just behemoth of a man. But it's interesting that people are always asking, where's his strength coming from? So maybe he looks more like me. Or if I did something like Samson, they'd be like, what's going on here, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe Samson's a bit weak looking guy, or just an average Joe, because they're like, where's your strength at, right? Samson's first response is, okay, if you bind me with seven fresh cords, not yet dried, um, I would lose my strength, right? Well, lo and behold, the next day, he wakes up bound with seven fresh um, cords. Philistines rush, he breaks them, slaughtered, right? Okay. <laughs> The next, you know, seemingly, the text seems like the very next day, Delilah goes, well, you deceived me. Um, okay, so where does your strength come from? He says, okay, well, new ropes, not cords. I want ropes this time, right? I want new, new ropes, not yet even dry. That's how new they are. If I woke up like that, I would have no strength. Philistines lay in wait. They ambush. Uh, Samson wakes up, attacks them. He's still pretty strong, all right? Delilah even more upset. Okay, if you really loved me, you would tell me this, right? You've deceived me twice now. What really is it? He gets closer to the truth. He goes, "If you, if you bound my hair, if you took my seven locks, right, and weave them together, maybe put a little nice pin in them, that's when I'd lose all my strength." Wakes up. Maybe she braids his hair in the night. I don't know. Puts a nice little pin, dolls them up, looks, makes them look good. Philistines attack. Samson's still pretty strong. So we get the idea down in verse sixteen that now Delilah really, really kind of lays in on him and goes, okay, you don't love me because you haven't told me this. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. Maybe we'll come back to that comment later. But finally, he tells her the truth, wakes up, in the middle of the night, she has a barber come in, shave his head, wakes up, he's, he looks like me, and he's weak, right? And the Philistines come in, they gouge his eyes out, they put him in prison, he grinds wheat now, pretty lowly job, he's made to be a jester, they call him out when they want to laugh at their oppression over the Israelites, Um, and it comes all the way down to the end of chapter 16, one of those moments they've called him out to kind of just poke and, and prod at the guy to make fun of him. He, he reaches out and he, he asks how many people are there. And we come to find out there's about 3,000 Philistines there in that, kind of in, in, at that party, right? And he leans over, puts his hand on one pillar, puts his hand on the other, and he prays out a pretty somber prayer. He says, O oh Lord God, please, verse 28, Please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O oh God, that I may at once be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Later on he says, Let me die with the Philistines. With his last act brings down the pillars, the house collapses, and he, along with all the Philistines, are crushed. He kills more Philistines, enemies of God, that day than any other day combined in his life. And thus is the story of Samson. He, he ends on a high note. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of lows to get there. Ultimately, he's remembered on a high note because we find in Hebrews chapter 11, right, he's, he's buried with his ancestors in, the, in chapter 16 and verse 31. Let's, but to begin our discussion, let's go back to chapter 13. I have a question about a figure that maybe we should be talking about as well. Obviously, we got Delilah. Obviously, we have Delilah, and so we have a lot of supporting cast. But it all starts with a pretty mysterious figure in chapter 13. The angel of the Lord visits Manoah and his wife multiple times. Some people point to this being Jesus himself on a top of a, a mission, appearing as a man before his incarnation in Bethlehem. What are the points for or against that line of thought, and which one seems to make more sense?
2: Well, the angel of the Lord appears a lot throughout Scripture. Uh, This isn't the first time, even in this book, that the angel of the Lord appears. But if you journey back, the the first time uh, reference is made to this individual, it's in Genesis 16 with Hagar When she is temporarily dismissed from the house of Abraham, she finds herself in the wilderness, and guess who shows up? The angel of the Lord. And then you can go to um, Genesis 22. Abraham is about to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, and and guess who it is who interrupts him? It's the angel of the Lord. And then go to Exodus chapter 3. Moses is standing in front of a burning bush, and you know who we're told speaks? The angel of the Lord. You can go to Numbers 22. Balaam is following uh, some men to go see Balak, and his donkey keeps avoiding something. Turns out he's avoiding the angel of the Lord. Uh, You get to Judges chapter 6. The angel of the Lord is who comes to visit Gideon and call him to his judgeship. My point is the angel of the Lord, and that's not all the listings of the times that this individual, this entity, uh, is mentioned in Scripture. What I find fascinating is that in most instances, there's an association between the angel of the Lord and God himself. So if you go to Genesis chapter 16, where where the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, when she's done conversing with him, you know what she says? She says, uh, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. When uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to uh, Abraham and prevented him from sacrificing Isaac, Genesis chapter 22 and verse 12, the angel of the Lord speaks and says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Or you can go to Genesis... I'm sorry, to Exodus chapter 3, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses at the burning bush. The text says in verse 4, When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. We're told it's the angel of the Lord, but it's God calling. And then in that same chapter, the angel of the Lord would go on to say, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. My point is this. The angel of the Lord routinely is associated with God himself throughout Scripture. But the question is, is the angel of the Lord Jesus pre-incarnate in the Old Testament? And I don't know that there is any definitive textual proof that it is Jesus. The one argument that I have routinely come across is that no one can lay their eyes on God the Father and live. I believe Jesus even said that in John chapter 6. And so it is argued by scholars that it must be Jesus in a pre-incarnate state because you, you could not lay your eyes on God the Father. So it's got to be another member of the, the Godhead. Therefore, it has to be Jesus the Son. Now, here's the thing. That's just scholars debating this topic and coming up with the most reasonable argument they can come up with. Deep down, I I don't think the Bible is definitive on this subject, and I don't think it is necessary for it to be definitive on this subject. But it is fascinating to consider the fact that when we have this reference to the angel of the Lord, on most occasions, there is a reference uh, to God in some fashion.
3: The word angel in chapter 13 of the book of Judges is in, in chapter 13 is said 12 times alone. So obviously there's something significant happening in chapter 13 in the book of Judges. Um, so some, something definitely important is going on. But before I say anything else, I just want to preface it by saying I, I think it's okay for us to say we don't know. You know, we, you know I, 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 I think it's okay to not be exactly sure where you stand on this issue, on, on whether the angel of the Lord is Jesus or not. Uh, it's okay to not be sure where you stand on it. Uh, as Kyle saying, you saying, know, God's Word is not in any way definitive on the matter. Um, and so maybe it's just best uh, for us not to be definitive either. Uh, I think that's a safe thing. For us to be as well as if the Bible is not definitive on something, well, why should I be? Um, Because some people build their whole, you know, theological uh, belief system on the fact that this is Jesus. And and I I don't know if we should do that. I don't know if we should do the opposite either. And say that there's no absolute way that this could ever be Jesus. Because as we know, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus himself uh, is is an eternal being, has been here uh, has never not been, is who Jesus is. He has always existed. So uh, Jesus uh, wasn't born uh, and come into being for the first time in Bethlehem. We know that. He was with Jesus at the beginning, uh, or with, with God the Father in the beginning. However, it is interesting to note that, as Kyle was mentioning, you know, the angel of the Lord is all throughout the Old Testament, Over and over and over again. And then, crickets in the Mm -hmm. New Testament. That's a good point. Not not anywhere in the New Testament, unless you have the King James Version, do you find the angel of the Lord after his birth. The angel of the Lord disappears altogether. This this prominent figure all throughout the Old Testament, and now he's disappeared in the New Testament, something scholars point out as, as a possibility. Of, of why the angel of the Lord could, could have been Jesus, the Son of God. Um, just an interesting note. One of the most popular mentions um, scholars look to when it comes to the angel of the Lord, one, one you didn't mention, uh, maybe because it doesn't explicitly say the angel of the Lord, it says the Lord's angel. And that's when you go to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, when they were put into the fiery furnace, and amongst them was a fourth figure, right, walking around the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar exclaims, like the Son of God. And so some scholars look at that and they go, the Son of God, that's Jesus. Jesus was there in the fire among Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so there's this, there's this great uh, uh, investigation you can have on, on that one instance alone. But then scholars will turn around and say, Well, what would a pagan Babylonian king know what the Son of God looked like? You know, so... Uh, why are we giving all this credence to this one-off statement uh, from this pagan king of Babylon? So whatever you come down to on this matter, um, it's one of those questions that we're just going to have to wait to find out. There's a long list of one of those questions that we're just going to have to wait to find out, I believe, since the Bible is not definitive. I don't think we should be either. But man, it it is interesting. It's fascinating to look at it. The angel of the Lord kills
1: 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Is that Jesus? The angel of the Lord is the bringer of pestilence after the David census. Is that Jesus? Someone over there is amen, it sounds like.
2: <laughs> I'm,
1: not, I'm not sure. I also don't know. Um, I know some would probably say, say, Craig, well, look at Revelation. Look at... Look at Jesus in Revelation, that matches that picture, and maybe there's something to that. I will say that um, in that burning bush conversation, uh, God tells Moses that he will be like God or as God to Aaron, and Moses isn't Jesus, and Moses isn't the angel of the Lord. Um, To me, that says that whoever God uses as his mouthpiece in a way serves in the place of him as his representative and it can and that his lines can be blended and blurred sometimes um, and so that'd be my additional caution to this. I won't belabor the point much more, Jay.
0: No, I think that's a great point, guys. This is a difficult question because there's not a definitive answer, right? I think y'all did a good job of showing, okay, there there might be some points that say yes, maybe there's some interesting Things to no, know in the language in which the angel uses a lot of the I, you know, when he's, talking to, when he's talking to Abraham, now I know you have faith in me, right? And so, but also on the other end, there's some other instances of the angel of the Lord, maybe just being a, a, just an angel of the Lord, right? So it's an interesting, interesting thought there. Let's go on to chapter 14, because now we get into this idea of the will of God and how Samson goes about serving that. Because I think there's a big debate on whether Samson is a good judge or a bad judge at times and the way God still uses him, right? Does Samson use the Spirit of the Lord to always accomplish the will of God, or does he abuse this gift from time to time? And then maybe a follow up to that do we as Christians today abuse certain gifts from the Lord, and if so, which ones?
1: Well, let me, I'll approach Samson for a moment. So mm-hmm. you have Samson, he has the, owes the 30 garments, and he goes and kills 30 dudes in Ashkelon. Um, and then that's the end of chapter 14. Then we get to the beginning of chapter 15, and uh, more wrong takes place. And Samson then says in chapter 15, verse 3 And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. In other words, if this time I'm going to be innocent, then last time I wasn't so innocent. And so, in my view, Samson himself, guilty as charged, is admitting his guilt that he was not using the strength of the Lord to accomplish God's will. There was some selfish purpose in mind. Uh, guys, I don't know what y'all think.
2: I, 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 I agree with you. I think Samson is aware that there's some um, selfishness to his use of the gift that God has given him. I mean, one of the times that we're told uh, that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him was when he killed a lion. Now, His role is to be a judge. That means his role is to deliver Israel um, from oppression. I don't know how killing a single lion is accomplishing that, per se. His second time for the Spirit of the Lord to rush upon him is when he went and killed those guys Craig was talking about, just to get some garments to pay off a debt that he should have never incurred to begin with. Because in his arrogance, he set up a a, uh, wage with these guys. And so the, at least these first two instances of the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him very much seem very, uh, very selfish, very personal, very unrelated to God's call. The third time, and there's only three times that the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, the third time is in Judges chapter 15 and verse 14, where he grabs the jawbone and kills a thousand guys. That is the one occasion where there's at least the hint or the... Um, possibility of him being a divine deliverer for Israel. This seems to be the one time, because as Ben pointed out in his summary of the chapter, the the, the people of Judah are saying, the Philistines are over us. No, God is over you. And now Samson is delivering them out of the hands of those Philistines by defeating them with the jawbone. So that's the one out of three times that he, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him that he actually does it for the Lord. So I do believe in looking at Samson, there is a, a, uh, uh, an abuse of this power that he's been given from God, at least to a degree.
3: So that, they've done a good job of addressing Samson in this. I, I want to address the second part of that question dress us. You know, how do we sometimes abuse the gifts that God has given us? And I think I'll be first to say that, that there are times that, that all of us abuse the gifts that, that God has given us. I think uh, even the most prideful person would say that, that uh, they have, have abused some of the Lord's gifts, some of the Lord's blessings in their life. Um, and that's the thing about the gifts God gives us. I think. They can be the greatest thing about us. But if we're not careful, they can easily become the absolute biggest flaw we have in our life. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's up to us to, to harness that gift and channel it the right way. Um, I think of people who have a, an extreme gift for singing praises to the Lord. They have a great voice and, and they... they, they you, you, you know who they are. They have a great voice. They, they can sing well. And sometimes you, you, you see that person who can sing so great and they have done their whole life singing praises to God just for them to turn around and want to seek the praises of men because of their beautiful voice. And uh, I've, I've had friends that, that, have, that have done that before and uh, it's, it's, it's exactly what we see with Samson. It's, this gift that God has given you has actually become something that you've taken too much pride in. Uh, You you can also see it with someone who has a great ability to teach. We all know people in in the brotherhood in the past who have this marvelous uh, way of of teaching and persuading and preaching and, 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 and convicting people. And at one time they used that for the Lord. But within the blink of an eye, they start using it for their own uh, purposes. They start using that gift that God gave them to start conveying their opinion and not God's word. And we see that time and time again. You can also see it that uh, someone has been given a gift of leadership. I feel like not all of us have a gift to be a leader of a big group. You can see... Some people do though. Some people are given a great gift of leadership. It might be a a, a shepherd who at one time was, was just so dedicated to the to the to the flock, to shepherding in such a powerful way, but then they became a board of directors. They called themselves president, you know, of the board of directors instead of a, a group of 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 elders. So I think every single gift that God gives us, whether it be singing or, or the way we can preach or the, or the way we teach or the way we can lead, or you can go down the list of the New Testament gifts that, that Paul lists of the spiritual gifts God gives us. You can, each one, you can see how if we don't channel it and harness it the right way, that it can very, very quickly become our worst trait possible. Even though God meant it for good, we take it and make it bad.
2: Another form of abuse as you're on that line is not using your gift. Oh, that's a great point. To yeah. just appeal to the the parable of the talents and the guy that hit his, you can abuse what God has given you by not even employing it.
3: And what what I'm trying to get down to is those gifts that we have. Every one of us has a gift. Even the one talent man was given a talent. Nobody was given zero. What we have to do is we have to make sure that our, our gift and our talent is being used in conjunction with God's will. And that's when something very special happens. I think the only thing I'll add is
0: when I think of the gift that we abuse at times, it's not, for me, it's not so much like, a, like that, that's a great way of, of seeing that, right? I think that's, I think that's spot on. But another, like another side of the coin, another way of seeing a gift that maybe we abuse is the gift of forgiveness. God has given us maybe possibly the best gift ever when it comes to his son and that now we have forgiveness through him, right? And any time I take that for granted, any time I have that mindset of, well, I know I have the forgiveness of God, right? That's me taking advantage of a gift that God has given me. Just like Samson said, I know I have the strength of the Lord, so I'll rip this line apart. Well, I know I have the forgiveness of God, so it's okay if I, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, whatever it may be. So I think we have to be careful, you know, when it comes to maybe our talents, maybe our, our gifts in that sense, but also the, maybe some spiritual gifts, the blessings that God has given us in that way
1: as well. But just to be clear, I mean, like, I can, I can use my talents and gifts for the benefit of myself and my family. I want to make sure we're very clear about that. Um, that's, that's okay. Uh, you know, Solomon spent seven years on the temple and 12 years on the king's palace and God didn't rip into him and say, why would you whoa, 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 almost twice as much time on your place than mine? You know, I think that, that there's a there's a proper balance and perspective that I wanna make sure I stress there, that it's okay to, to bless one's house, um, but not at the expense of the Lord, of course. Really I th- yeah, I
0: think that's that. it, the expense of the Lord and at what point do you make it more about yourself? Yeah, I think yeah. there's that line, that's yeah. a great point. So we obviously see some flaws in Samson, right? What would you say was, like, comprehensively, overall, what would you say the greatest flaw of Samson is? And then also, why does God continue to bless him despite this problem? And even his attitude in Judges 15. If you look at Judges 15, verses 18 through 19, after the jawbone jaw <coughs> instance, Samson goes, okay, I'm about to die of thirst, God. Did you, did, did you give me all this strength just so I could die thirsty? Thanks a lot. It's a pretty... Um, ungrateful attitude here, and yet God says, okay, I've got you, here's some water, right? Makes it happen for him. Samson's a flawed man, but why does God continue to allow him the Spirit of the Lord, and then why does he even put up with his mindset at times?
3: I think Samson's greatest flaw is uh, you could very easily come down to pride. Samson's biggest flaw is, is pride in his life. He He believed that since he was one of one, right? No one else could possibly match Samson in strength or in popularity or fame, whatever it was, Samson was at the top of the list. That's why he lived his entire life just doing whatever in the world he wanted to do until the very end, right? And you see him, I want that woman, okay? It's, she's mine. I want this woman, okay? She's mine. I want to kill that group of listening, okay? They're mine. You know, he, he lives this invincible life, and because he lives this, quote-unquote, invincible life, he believes nothing can harm him, nothing can faze him. And because of that, because of that attitude, that, that attitude rooted in pride, it ultimately leads to him forgetting where that power came from in the first place um, and how he was supposed to use that power from the get-go. And so why does you know, God keep using this guy? Well, I think the book of Judges... Is, is, is an example of what I'm about to say, but especially the, the, the figure, the, the story of Samson is a big example of when Israel gives you lemons, make lemonade if you're God, right? Israel just keeps on giving lemons to the Lord. All of these leaders that we've talked about thus far in our study have these huge flaws. Uh, a lot of them have, have these, these glaring flaws, these holes in their character, uh, and yet God continues to make a masterpiece out of it. I think you see the very same thing with Samson. I mean, we, we didn't get a chance to do this in chapter 13, but just how many of the judges we've talked about thus far in our study have had these humble beginnings, right? Samson's no different. Even though the angel of the Lord came multiple times, that's pretty special about his birth, but look at his mom. She was barren. Look at his dad. If you look into what it means to be of Zora, a lot of the lepers in the community were sent out to Zora. So some scholars believe that Samson's father might have even been a leper. Here you have this great, you know, invincible man that came from a barren mom and a leprous dad. I mean, there's a potential of that, right? So I think this, this, this example is, is just something that we've seen time and time again in the book of Judges. Of, of god making lemonade out of lemons yeah and i would why does god still
1: do his thing with samson and bless samson i um, in spite of samson's issues i'm going to go back to what i shared in chapter 13 verse 5 because the word of the lord said mm-hmm. i'm going to begin to save israel from the hand of the philistines through this guy and no matter how messed, messed up he is it's going to happen and that to me to me, that, that doesn't raise Samson up. It raises the word of the Lord and his faithfulness up as he's going to do what he says he's going to do. So as we close out, let's look at the kind of the end of Samson's
0: life real quick. And obviously the most glaring problem or instance in Samson's life is just how blind he is. Yes, he's, his eyes are gouged out in chapter mm-hmm. 16, later in chapter 16, but he is just so blind with Delilah. My, my kind of the last two questions is, one, how could Samson be that blind? And do we look like that? Right. And then lastly, just as a closing thought, what's your, what's your kind of biggest takeaway from the story overall?
2: I think Samson was that blind because he had forgotten that our relationship with God is a relationship of dependence. And he had grown into this self-sufficiency. He had, he had become this individual who thought he was smart because, he was, because of who he was, or he thought he was strong because of who he was. That whole episode with Delilah, I mean, after she— you know, puts the cords on him, don't you know she's going to do the next one too? Why would you keep telling her suggestions? So by the time he gets to the point that he says, hey, if you cut my hair, I'll lose my strength, he has to know that he's going to wake up with a shaved head, right? I mean, he can't be that ignorant. And so he's giving her the answer, and then the text says when he uh, woke, woke up, he's, he's like, I'm going to go out in my power and defeat these guys. He had completely excluded God. He was completely yeah, yeah. independent at that point. And that that self-sufficient mindset is his downfall and and blinded him. He's just like the church in Laodicea. If you remember our Revelation study from back in the summer, Jesus said you are poor, blind, Mm. naked, because it was a church that was completely self-sufficient. And that's the issue that that, uh, Samson has here as well.
1: Mm. You know, if you're in a relationship with a guy or a girl, and every rational, reasonable person says, this is a horrible idea, then you might need to step back and reconsider things. This is a message to some of you folks over there who are dating right now, just want you to understand. Uh, because, I mean, after you said three times with Delilah, you know, he's woken up and he's like, wait, my hands are tied now, how'd that happen? Uh, and everybody here sitting can giggle because they're like, what is this guy's problem? He is blinded by that. Um, Proverbs 7:21 through 23, With much seductive speech she persuades him, with her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Um, That is the uh, almost incomparable power of a seductress, an adulteress, a woman in a man's life who lacks self-control. Be careful.
3: I think what you've said about Samson is, is very powerful. It's very, very poignant, very true. I want to I talk about us and how, how we can be like Samson in, in, in that regard, be so blinded mm-hmm. to the reality around us. I think Samson had so many successes in a row, again, he felt invincible. When you have that many successes, you feel like that you can do no wrong. And I think there's 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 a possibility that we can do that today as Christians. There's a possibility that we can do that as a congregation. That you have all of these successes in the past and years gone by of, of building this great reputation in the community of, of this great Uh, thriving and and flourishing church that has such a powerful youth group or has such a great children's program or has such a great outreach program or has such great preachers coming in all the time and has such great diversity and, and great you go down the list and you're like, we're Buford and that's who we are. And you have this pride about who we are as a congregation. But when you have all those successes time and time again, You you wind up forgetting who gave those blessings to begin with. You wind up forgetting what it took to get those blessings to begin with. You wind up forgetting uh, the the pillars of the faith that it took uh, for Bob Elliott to to host the church in his basement. You forget the humble beginning. And so tonight, as I think about us and I think about the view for church, I'm asking... Are we resting on our laurels? Is there a temptation to to rest on your laurels when when you have such success? You have such amazing facilities and you have such amazing opportunity in the community. You have such amazing uh, growth in our area. Are we resting on our laurels, resting on our former success and depending on that former success of the past? Or are we blazing into the future and marching for the Lord today? I think we've got to think about that because it won't be long until we all know congregations. We all can think about congregations that were the standard in a community. And today they're closing doors or today they're not what they used to be. So, tonight, that, 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 that's what I'm thinking about with the story of Samson. God associates with the humble, not the proud. And it wasn't until this man was literally blinded that he could see how spiritually blinded he had become. And in that state of, of humility at the end of his life, you know, I don't want to end tonight without talking about this glorious ending of Samson. Absolutely. I don't believe without this glorious ending of Samson that we find him in Hebrews 11. He comes around. I think it's a yeah. powerful thing to say that by the end, he sacrificed, he went, we got from up there on the screen, selfish or selfless, whether it, he, his whole life may have, been, may have been selfish, but that last act was selfless because he knew he was going down with the ship, so to speak, and he did it anyway. So tonight, I'm thinking that the message has to be to me, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord he will lift you up. And that's what we see by this great act at the end of, of, of Samson's life.
0: You know, we, I, I think of, you know, when we think of the relationship between Delilah and Samson, we can all look at how blind he was and how foolish he acted and we can Google and we can go just, what you know, how crazy is this, right? But the reality is we all have a Delilah in our lives. Maybe not in a relationship form, hopefully. But we all have something in our lives that makes no sense that we're still attached to. It makes no sense that we keep going back to this vice, that website, that location. We, only you can describe or define what your Delilah is. But we all have these things that we turn to and that we refuse to cut out and we refuse to see the red flags. And we go, nope, it's good enough. This is fine. I, I'm in control. Every, I'm strong enough to overcome this. I'll just keep it in my back pocket. I've got it. It's, everything's fine, right? And yet they keep knocking away at us. And ultimately, a lot of times, it's not until we're blinded completely that we finally see our purpose and we finally see how to get rid of that and fulfill God's will. Gentlemen, I appreciate your thoughts tonight. I hope this has been a study that's been profitable. For all of us, Samson and and everybody in his story is something we can take uh, a lot from. Let's, Let's close out with prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for your word and the true account of Samson that we can look to tonight, Lord. Thank you for the study that his life was and your wisdom, Lord, in giving us a snapshot of that and that. Thousands of years later, Lord, we could look to it and glean so much. Lord, help us to be better followers of your will. Lord, help us not to give you back difficult situations that you just make the best of, Lord, because of your almighty power and divine will. But Lord, help us to give you back situations in which we have done everything to follow your will. Strengthen us, Lord, as you strengthen him, and strengthen us in ways that, Lord, your will will be accomplished. In progress, your son's name. Amen.